Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tom brings us a message where we consider the consequences of Adam and Eve's decisions in the garden. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tom. Good morning. My name is Tom Illenboss. If we haven't met yet, I would love to have a chance to meet you. Uh, I am uh, the senior pastor of Harbor Churches, so uh, I get to work with all the different churches in Harbor Churches, and it's a joy for me to be here this morning. I get to the different churches at different times, and uh, so I don't get to meet everybody, but would love to get a chance to meet you. So I'll be around afterwards, and we'll love to, to connect. I was just thinking about that song, and... Uh, what I love about Genesis, there's lots of things I love about Genesis, but I think about the last couple of weeks, and uh, one of the things I love about Genesis is God is this all-powerful, transcendent, amazing creator being for whom no one can ever come close, and yet at the same time, he's this intimate, connected God who does come close to us. It's, it's this powerful paradox that's just true in the story. Hopefully, you've uh, begun to dive into Genesis. I know if you've been there the last couple of weeks with Tim and Hannah, you've heard us begin the story of creation and talk about how important it is uh, to begin in the right place, how important it is to pay attention to how we read the Bible. Uh, so we've been uh, kind of racing through, unfortunately. I mean, we're going to be in this for 40 weeks, so we're not racing through, and yet it feels to me like we're racing through because we're already on Genesis 3, and there's so much uh, in, in the book of Genesis. So I hope that you've gotten the devotional. I hope that during the week you're digging in and just allowing God to speak to you in different ways and seeing all the wonderful things that are in the story. When you get into, um, into Genesis 1, do we have any poets in the room? Anybody who writes poetry? Come on, raise your hands. I know you're out there. Okay, you're scared to say because you don't want to admit it. Who loves poetry? Do you like poetry? Okay. More people who love poetry than actually write it, maybe. Uh, but there's this interesting thing about Genesis chapter 1. It's written like a poem. There's these uh, three stanzas, then three stanzas, then uh, what I learned in school is called the Volta, kind of the, the ending piece, number uh, day seven, right? There's this kind of poetic movement. And Hannah last week, I, I actually loved it. I don't, I don't know if you responded to her reading it in Hebrew. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I wasn't here last week, uh, but I, uh, this week I was driving to Chicago and I thought I should listen to Hannah if I'm coming to South to preach. So I listened to, and, and I loved it because I, I learned Hebrew when I was in seminary. And I, I wondered though, about some of you who are Lord of the Rings fans and you came last week and you were like, oh, it's, we're going to have Elvin today in church. It's kind of sounded like Elvin to me a little bit. But uh, if you heard uh, her speak that, the reason I loved it is because the speech itself in the original Hebrew has some amazing poetic uh, qualities to it. There's all these echoes that happen in it. There's all kinds of uh, things that are happening there that are just so rich, so rich. What I want to do uh, this morning is do something a little bit, it's not poetic what I'm going to do, but I'm going to have a structure that's similar. Uh, there's uh, three days, three days, and then the seventh day, right? Well, I'm going to, I couldn't get it that short. So I'm going to give you three things and then three things, and then three things in one thing. Okay, so I have four, or three stanzas and an ending. Uh, so first of all, I'm gonna give you the three things that I want you to notice in the story of Genesis 3 this morning. There's lots more than those, but three I specifically want you to notice. And I'm gonna actually pull back into Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit as well. Then three things I want you to notice that are not in the story. Because sometimes seeing what's not there is as important as seeing 
what is there. So three things that are not there. And then I want to tell you three truths and a lie. Do you ever play the game, two truths and a lie? Or that kind of, I'm going to tell you uh, three truths and a, and a lie. Uh, so I want to start just by reading the chapter. It's a little bit long. It'll come up on your screen. Uh, I actually didn't check if I have the exact same uh, version as you. So what I read may be a tad different than what's on the screen. But uh, listen, read, uh, hear this word from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. (laughs) You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, This is God again. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let me give you um, 
Let me give you three things that I want you to pay attention to in the text this morning. And uh, let's just start there. Uh, The first one is this, is that God defines three relationships in chapters one and two. God defines three relationships. So if you take all three chapters together, and we see them again in this chapter, if you go back, God defines these three different, it's actually, uh, I guess it's two relationships. It's three different parties. You have God, you have human beings, and then you have the earth and all the creatures in the earth, right? So it's the, it's the land and the creatures and all of those things. And God defines the relationships between them. Uh, it's, it's curious. There's, uh, God says, uh, we, want, uh, we want to create man in our own image, but man's going to be different than us, right? So there's likeness there, but there's difference. And God creates us along with all of the animals, but says there's likeness there, but there's going to be difference. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to, Well, not only is there likeness between us and the animals, but there's likeness between us and the dirt, right? Because in Genesis 2, God takes the dirt, fashions it, blows his breath into it. And so we're like the dirt and the animals, but we're different. And God gives these differences between us. He says, you you will um, name the animals, Adam, and you will work with the earth and you will care for it and you will tend to it. So you're a part of it, but you're different from it. You're created in the image of God, like God, but different. Created like the animals, like the animals, like the ground, but different. Uh, We are part of this whole thing in in a symbiotic way, right? God has developed the world in a sense of order in which we get along with one another in particular ways. Uh, As Tim Tim and Hannah both shared, God creates order out of chaos, right? And the substance of that order is the symbiotic harmony that we call shalom. Now, I don't remember if either of them talked about shalom, but shalom is the Hebrew word for this working rightly together. God has ordered it in such a way that it is shalom between God and us and between us and the world. And so that's one thing I want you to notice again in this text is uh, there's something happening in the relationships, right? There's something about God and us, and there's something about us and the creature. So that's the first one. The second one is this, is that God gives freedom and limits. God gives freedom and limits. If we go back to the creation story in Genesis 1, God is defining, right? I just mentioned that. He's defining the difference between us and him, between us and the earth and the animals. But there's more, right? There's, there's, there's distinctions that God makes. Light, darkness, water divided from land, the day divided from the night, the sea creatures divided from the flying creatures, from the land creatures. There's these divisions and there's limits. He separates and he distinguishes. This morning, um, I want to note specifically one passage about freedom and limits that, that comes in chapter 2 from last week. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I think it'll come up on your screen. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not from the tree of the knowledge of good not, must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You see there God gives freedom, right? Oh, you can eat from any of the stuff except limits this tree. God the whole order of Genesis one and two, God is doing this, right? Part of the ordering of God is freedom 
God gives us all of the earth and says, steward it for me, freedom in that. I want you to build stuff, create stuff, develop culture, all of those things, freedom. But don't do these things, don't step across these boundaries. So that's number two, God gives freedom and limits. Third one, choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. So let's talk about those three relationships, right? Choices have consequences. God says, if you eat of the tree, notice in Genesis 2, you will surely die. God warns them that if you cross those limits, something will happen to the relationships. These key relationships between God and us, uh, us and the world around us, something is going to happen and there's going to be consequences. In chapter 3, this is the big kind of meat of chapter 3 in Genesis, is those consequences. We see Adam and Eve cross the limits, cross the boundaries, step into, use their freedom to do something they're not supposed to do. And they end up with consequences. Enmity between the snake and humans or animals and humans. Pain and unfulfilled desire in relationships with children and with our partners. Painful toil in working the ground. Um, uh, I don't know if you noticed this. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, let me read the, when, when God gives us stewardship over the land or gives stewardship over to man, listen to what he says. I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I will give every green plant for food. There's this amazing provision that God provides, right? He gives us every green plant for food. And then there's this big argument, like, were they all vegetarians? And I'm like, no, I really love smoked pork. But, the, you know, we're not going to argue about that today. But God gives them all of this stuff, and there's no mention of it being difficult, right? He says, steward it, take care of it. But something happens between us and the earth, and now it's going to be difficult, I was talking to my 16-year-old the other day, and we were talking about work. He's, you know, learning to work. He's a good, hard worker, you know, and he said, Dad, sometimes work's just not fun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Genesis 3, right? Because sometimes work is hard, and there's toil, and, and you work, and you don't get what you want to produce, and um, that's a result of the fall. So we've got three things, Okay. Three things that show up in, in Genesis 3, well, just one through three that I want you to pay attention. God defines three relationships. He gives freedom and he gives limits. And then when we cross those limits, there's consequences. So no rocket science there, nothing. But you, this is important theology that kind of puts the stake in the ground of, of Genesis as we begin. Now, I want to tell you, um, take a little turn. I want to talk about my dog. Is that okay? Dog lovers here? Cat lovers? Okay, we have a special place for you. It's in the, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> called purgatory. No. Um, uh, uh, so I, I've had dogs all my life. When I was a kid, uh, we had dogs. And they were, they were my parents' dogs. I mean, they were my dogs too, but they were my parents' dogs. And we had the, uh, we had the little poodles, the little white poodles, you know. And we had uh, Buffy and Missy were their names. And Buffy and Missy were a lot of fun. You know, we would come home and we'd play with them. And just delightful, delightful animals. Except sometimes right? And we're, um, I've heard this as Dutch. I don't know if it's Dutch, but we keep the garbage under the sink. 
you know? I don't know if that's a Dutch thing, but apparently. So we keep the garbage under the sink. And somehow, you know, dogs are smart, right? And so, uh, you know, you have a nice chicken dinner on Sunday, and then you go out to small group that night, and then you come back, and the dog's been smelling chicken all day, and the chicken stuff is in the garbage under the sink. And, uh, and Missy and Buffy do everything they can to get the chicken, right? And eventually, uh, they figure out how to get that little door open. And so sometimes we would come home from wherever we were, and, uh, and the dogs would have gotten under the sink, opened the door, and pulled the garbage out and got into it, and it's all over. Anybody have this problem? Like, we've, maybe you've solved it now. You know, this is years ago. Uh, we, when we had a dog, when we first got married, my wife and I, we had this big bin with like a huge, I mean, I could barely get into the garbage, let alone the dog. Uh, that would have helped. But these little dogs would get in and garbage would be everywhere. And, uh, and here's how we solved it. I, I remember, these are things you learn from your parents, you know. Uh, anybody remember the newspaper? I was going to try to find a newspaper to bring today, and I'm like, where am I going to get a newspaper? Um, but newspaper, we, you know, we got the newspaper all the time, and my dad would take the newspaper. Now, let's not judge my dad now. This is, you know, we're, this is like the 70s and the early 80s, you know? And uh, my dad would take the newspaper, and he would kind of roll it up. And I don't know if I ever saw him hit the dog with the newspaper, uh, maybe once, um, like like tap the dog on the on the back end or something, right? But he had this phrase, "I'm going to get the paper after you," <laughs> and the dog would freak out because we would come home and my dad. So my dad's a loving person. He loves dogs. He's connected. But suddenly, I imagine for these little poodles who just wanted chicken, all of a sudden, loving father figure turns into horrible monster who wants to destroy me, right? Comes after him with a paper and he's angry. You know, he's going to pick up all this stuff and, uh, and he would get after it uh, with the paper. I wonder sometimes, I wonder if we think about God this way. I wonder if we're a little bit like Missy and Buffy and we wonder, is God angry with me and he's coming after me? Let me show you what's not in the text. Three things that are not in the text. The first one is this, is God's anger. Read Genesis 3 and find it for me. It's glaringly missing. Now, I don't know what churches you grew up in. Uh, I grew up in great churches, and yet somehow I learned that God was angry with me. Somehow I learned that my, my sin, when I crossed those limits, turned into God's wrath and his anger, and that God has a paper rolled up and is coming after me. Somehow I learned that. And we, we can spend more time arguing about that and the wrath of God throughout the scriptures, and I'd love to have that conversation with you, but you have to buy me a cup of coffee first probably. But um, th- at least in Genesis 3... It's not there. Show me anger in Genesis 3. It doesn't exist. In fact, um, listen to how God responds. I love this. I love this. Where are you? Who, who, Who told you you were naked? Eve, what is this you have done? Notice God asks questions. And depending how you read the scripture, um, it's changed, you know, we don't know how it was read. We don't know the tone of how God said these things. I mean, maybe, I mean, you can read that in an angry way if you want to, that's fine. And you're ta- just understand you're taking a particular theological framework and placing it on the scriptures. I am too today. And I'm, I'm wondering, what if you don't put the anger framework on it? In fact, if I look at it that way, it seems like God is surprised 
where, where did you go? Well, who told you you were naked? Eve, what, what'd you do? It's what happens when you read the scripture that way. The tone may be different here. In fact, maybe you've never realized that the tone actually may be gentle, surprised, confused, certainly disappointed, I think, but I don't see anger anywhere in the chapter. It could be there. I just don't, I don't see it glaringly. And this, uh, the reason this is important, and this goes back a little bit to what Hannah said and some stuff that Tim said, is this would have been incredibly countercultural in the time. Read any other creation story. Hannah said this last week, and it's, uh, it's rooted in violence. Ours is not. This story is not rooted in the violence and anger of the gods. God does not come in and smite humans and do all these destructive things in his anger because he can't control his anger. That's not the God that we see in Genesis 3. Where we got that idea, uh, I have a lot of things to say about that. Uh, There's a lot of history that goes into why we see it the way we see it. But what if we take a closer look and recognize that there's no anger in this story, at least clearly? Here we get a different kind of God, potentially. This is what I want to propose this morning. A tender, compassionate God who holds mud in his hands to fashion men and women out of his image, who blows the breath of life into that mud, who then takes Adam and and realizes, well, I gave him all the animals and I'm here for him, but really neither the animals nor me are suitable helpers. Do you ever realize like, like God is recognizing like not even himself is a suitable helper for Adam. Like that's, I never thought of that before until this week. <laughs> Blowing my mind. God says, no suitable helper, including me, God says, I'm gonna make him one. And so he puts Adam to sleep and then he takes a part of his rib and he fashions Eve. How beautiful and amazing and tender is that? Okay, but back to my story about my dogs. Let's go there again, okay? Buffy and Missy. Uh, So guess what happened um, when we would have a great meal again and we would leave it in the garbage and we would go somewhere and the dogs just couldn't help themselves and they would get into it um, and they would hear the garage door opener, right? Because your dog can hear the garage door opener. They probably can hear your car from a ways away. Um, They can hear the garage door and they know scary dad with the paper is going to come, you know? And the door opens and guess what happens? You know what happens, right? Where's the dog? Do you know? Hiding, right? The dog is hiding because the dog is scared that the mean guy is going to come after him. Same thing happens in this story. Have you heard the, have you heard the phrase, um, shame on you? Shame on you. Right? Have you felt that before, right? I'm guessing, uh, I can think of times when people said that in my life. And I'm like, oh yeah, shoot, shame on me, you know? Uh, shame on you. And so the feeling of Buffy and Missy is dad's coming home and, and he's shame on you and I'm, com- I'm coming after you. And so we expect something in this story. And because we expect it, because we feel it, because people have done it to us, we read it into the story. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's there. Number two, the second thing that's not there, God's emotional rejection. God's emotional rejection. 
when I say shame on you, I'm, I'm emotionally rejecting you, right? I'm pushing you away. I'm saying you, you don't belong here anymore. You have to earn something to get back into relationship with me. I am emotionally rejecting you. It's not there. Now, shame is there for sure, right? Shame is there. Adam and Eve feel it. Uh, where, where are you, Adam? I was naked, so I hid. It's there, right? The shame is there. But where does it come from? Does it come from God? Hmm, I don't know. I don't think so. God has a reaction for sure, but I don't see rejection anywhere in the story. Help me with it. I mean, we're reading this together, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not the expert on the scripture here. I'm just a, a pastor and preacher who's engaged with you and coming around this word and wrestling with it and trying to understand what the Spirit's saying to us. But I don't see God's rejection in the story. Shame is real, but I wonder if we're honest that shame comes maybe from deep down inside of us because we feel unworthy. We feel unlovable. We feel shame. But that's not what God gives in the story. In fact, at the end of the story, there's an interesting thing that happens. God does something different. He says, uh, okay, death has now entered. I see that you're ashamed. I see that you're afraid and you're hiding. I'm going to do a couple things. And one of those is death now happens. And I'm going to take death and I'm going to turn it and I'm going to turn it into protection for you. Did you ever notice that? The first death that happens in Genesis 3 is the death of an animal. And God takes the animal skins and puts them around Adam and Eve as an act of protection. In the very beginning of the story, when we cross the limits, when death enters in, when sin brings chaos back into our lives, the first thing that God does is take that death, which is the consequence of our sin, and turn it into redemption. Redemption begins in Genesis 3 through the act of death. Listen to what the writer in the Hebrews, way, way, way in the New Testament, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus and think about this act of compassion. It's a little bit long, but just listen. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including Adam and Eve, uh, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, okay, here it comes. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross death, right? Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see what's happening? The writer of Hebrews sees that through death, God creates redemption through the very thing that caused us to be uh, people who feel deep shame, who are responsible for guilt, and who carry chaos back into the good ordered world, God begins immediately to respond. Maybe, maybe shame is more about our problem than it is about God's reaction. Maybe it's more about us than it is about God. Maybe we have a God who runs toward us rather than emotionally distancing himself from us. 
Notice this when we get to Genesis 4 too, next week. It all ties together. Cain kills Abel. And the immediate thing, again, I think is like, oh, well, God's going to be really angry at Cain, isn't he? Reread the story. Tell me if you find anger in the story. Here's how God responds when Cain kills, well, actually, first when Cain brings an, uh, an unacceptable sacrifice, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, if you stay within the limits and the freedom, will you not be accepted? And then once he kills Abel, God says this, Where's your brother Cain? And then the same question that he asked Eve in Genesis 3. What have you done? Oh my goodness, what have you done? And I I feel the heart of God break there. I don't see anger. I I see the broken heart of God. And I hear in the passage the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. Death cries out, and once again, God responds with protection to Cain, but that's next week. Uh, We can't get into that. Um, Let's go back to my dad. Let's go back to my dad. Uh, When I would do things wrong, I would get punished. Anybody, I won't make you raise your hand. Get punished, right? Uh, I can't tell all those stories because I don't want you to know all those stories about me. (laughs) Uh, But when I would get in trouble, I would get punished. Um, Then I became a parent, um, and I had some things that I learned from my parents. And then my wife and I had to figure out parenting uh, together. And she's much more precise in her language than I am. And, um, and she will never use the word punishment. Her word is always consequences, right? Always consequences. And, and sometimes, um, personally, I just think, and she's not here this morning, so I can you know, say this, sometimes I think we're just renaming punishments consequences. But... <laughs> Uh, there are what are called, if, you're, if you've gotten into parenting stuff and you've read some books on it, you know that there's something called natural consequences. Natural consequences are the thing that happen when you do something and something happens just because it's natural, right? And then there are sort of related consequences, which are those things that um, parents then build on a little bit, right? Um, so those start to move into the punishment sort of area, uh, but there are these natural consequences. Here's what I want to wonder with you again, uh, because um, this is maybe slightly there, but it's not there as much as I thought it was. The third one, third sort of missing thing is God's punishment. God's punishment. As I read these stories, the more I read them, I realize that God's explanation is about the consequences of sin in our lives. You see, God ordered the world. It was chaos. God ordered it. God created freedom and limits. And when we cross those limits, there are natural consequences that happen. Now, again, I grew up thinking, well, God punishes us when we cross those limits. I'm not so sure. In fact, um, most most of the language in the consequences is in the passive tense. Because you've done this, this will happen. Uh, there's a little slight uh, portion where, where God says, I will put enmity between you, right? And there's one other spot, but it's not strong on punishment. In fact, in verse 14, God says this, because you have done this, these things happen. He says it to Adam too, a little bit further down. Uh, because you have done this, Adam, In fact, he says it this way. He says, because you listened to your wife and ate of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to, right? Because you've done this. Because you've done this, there are consequences. So what if, is it possible that when the order of creation is disrupted, 
This amazing order of creation is disrupted. When the beauty of God's artistry is soiled, when the goodness of God is besmirched, when the freedom of God is abused, when the limits of God are crossed or blurred or simply ignored, is it possible the consequences of a disordered world is death? Is it possible that's not God's punishment at all? but it's the consequences of the kind of world he created. Is it possible that that's what Paul means when he says that the wages of sin is death? That the consequences of sin is death? That the consequences of moving back towards chaos is what? Chaos, right? If we choose chaos over order, we're probably going to get chaos. Sure, we naturally look at these consequences as punishment from God, but I wonder, if we, if we see the passage differently, if we see God differently, if God is tender, if God is not angry, but if God is meeting out the consequences and not stopping those consequences, because he has the ability to stop them, I think. <laughs> he doesn't. But maybe they're not punishments. I've always tried to reconcile what I seem, what, what seems to be you see, we're supposed to, uh, as Christians, we're supposed to read the Old Testament through our understanding of Jesus in the New Testament because he is, as Paul says, he is the, the, the clearest vision we have of who God is. So if he's the clearest vision of who God is, then we read all these passages through Jesus. And so what I inherited um, through whatever, wherever I inherited this idea that God is angry, uh, that God has rejected me, and that God is punishing me, um, that feels like a very different God than God who shows himself in the person of Jesus, who is overwhelmingly loving, and who John, who was so close to Jesus, describes as pure love. Doesn't it change Genesis when we read it through the vision of Jesus and love? I've always tried to reconcile those two, and maybe, maybe this overwhelmingly loving God, possibly this overwhelmingly, probably this overwhelmingly loving, I'll, I'll even say most likely this morning, God has created an order with consequences, and that disorder leads to the disintegration and death, and God responds to us not with anger and rejection and punishment, but with love and protection. Proverbs 10, or Proverbs 14, I mean 12, says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but leads to death. And then Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. In Deuteronomy 30, there's this passage where God says, uh, I set before you today life and death, order and chaos. Now, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Pursue the good way, pursue the way of God in this world. Okay, uh, getting close to 10. Let me, let me uh, wrap up with three truths and a lie, okay? And, uh, and we'll close. First truth is this. Uh, our choices have consequences that create within us feelings of shame. It's true. Your choices matter. 
Please don't hear me when I, when I say, I, I, don't think I, I don't think God is angry with you. I, I don't think God is rejecting you. And I don't think that God is punishing you. That does not mean that sin doesn't have consequences. That doesn't mean that guilt is not real and that the shame we feel is not deep and profound. It is. If it wasn't, Jesus would not have to come, have had to come. Jesus would not have hung on the cross for you. They, they're meaningful. Moving against the created order of God into the chaos is a bad idea. And it results in all kinds of horrible things. And we begin to see that unraveling in Genesis chapter 3. Truth number two, our choices have consequences that create distance between us, with us and the world, and with us and God. This goes back to those three relationships, right? Our choices have consequences because God created us for right relationship, shalom, shalomic relationships with him, with each other, and with the world in which we inhabit and have been given stewardship over. And our choices when we move away from the way of life disrupts all of those. Disrupts our relationship with God, disrupts our relationship with each other, and disrupts our relationship with the world in which we live. Number three, our choices have consequences that create chaos against God's good order, and eventually those lead to death. Today I set before you life and death, says the Lord, and the choice isn't too hard for you, he says, which I think is a great phrase. Now, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Pursue the way of God, his order, his beauty, his amazing creation. Now, let me show you the lie. Because uh, this one, I think, is something that undergirds a lot of the stuff I've talked about today. The lie is that you are sinful to the core and God is angry with you. I've lived in West Michigan most of my life. Uh, I've grown up under Reformed theology. Uh, I've grown up in Reformed churches. I've gone to Reformed seminaries. I've read a lot of books. Um, I've thought a lot about theology. I've wrestled with the Bible for years. And this is a very important thing for you to know. Um, you are sinful to the core. You are sinful. Yeah, you are. And actually, sin affects everything. <laughs> yeah, it does. And you actually can't choose the right way because sin is effective in your life. Those things are all true. But you are not sinful to the core. God created you good. I want to go back to what Tim and Hannah said last week. You are created to be very good. Very, very good. Please hear me. Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. You are good. And you have become sinful. You are good. But you have chosen sin. You have been given freedom within limits. And you have chosen to cross those limits. You've been shown what an ordered universe is supposed to look like. And you have chosen chaos instead. And when you choose chaos and when you choose sin, you cross over those limits. You abuse your freedom. There are consequences. And death comes running into your life. But you're very good, God said. I, I've used this analogy other places. I don't know if I used it here, but I have four children. One of them is Aaliyah. She works here. Um, if any of my children came to me and said, uh, Dad, I'm nothing but sin. There's a song we sing, and I've asked our worship leaders not to sing it anymore. Uh, it goes like this. You'll know it, probably. You are good. You are good. What's the next line? But there's nothing good in me. 
It's not true. If my kids came to me and said, Dad, you're good, God's good, but there's nothing good in me, what would I do? What would a good father, what would a good mother do? We'd grab that child and look them in the face and look them in the eyes and say, oh no, you are so very good. You've done a lot of sinful things. You've made a lot of mistakes and it's really hard to choose the good sometimes. But you were created very good because Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. You are good, you are good. And God is not angry with you. He might be disappointed in your choice. He might be frustrated. He might be sad. But here's the truth I want, to, I want to leave you with. God loves you. God made you good. And God redeems you. We see that begin in the story. I don't want to get too far ahead. But Genesis 3, we see redemption begin in two things. One, the, the covering and then the protection uh, at the garden with the angels. And, and the reason, just a quick aside, the reason for the protection is there, notice there are two trees in the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so now that they've eaten the, the tree of, the, um, of knowledge of good and evil, death has entered in. If they eat from the tree of life, they will live eternally in disintegration of death. And God doesn't want that. He knows they have to die and be redeemed much longer, but uh, that's kind of what's going on. So God is protecting them with the, with the animal skins and with the angels uh, at, the, at the door. Let me read you a poem, and then I want to give you an ending scripture. This is a poem from a book by... Um, by Desmond Tutu uh, from South Africa and his daughter, Mfo Tutu. And it's called Made for Goodness. And it's from the voice of God. He says this, there's a choice in every moment. In every moment, there's a chance to flourish and not fail. Every instance is rich with possibility. I have not carved out the path that you must follow. We are forming the way together, you and I. I have destined you for good and a field of goodness lies before you. Listen to me. And though the way may not be easy, every step and stone will lead to joy. Turn aside to heed the voice of the tempter and faltering will mark your journey. I trust you, my child. Even if you have fallen, the road does not end. You can rise up from the ground and turn around. You can repent And head for your home in me. Seek me out, you will find me. I have been here from eternity until eternity. This is where I will be. I am waiting and you will find me. Some of you have felt felt that God is angry with you. And some of you have felt such deep shame. And some of you have thought that God is punishing you. And so uh, you haven't gone after God. I want to encourage you this morning, and they ref, they're kind of referencing in the poem, Luke 15, in the story of the prodigal son. Your God, since the creation of the world and since this moment in Genesis 3, has been chasing after you and waiting for you to come back to him. It's why our mission statement is helping people find their way back to God, because this father looks you in the eyes and says, come home, come home. Come home because I love you and you are very good. Let me end with this scripture from Paul in Philippians He says this, in all my prayers for all of you, Paul's praying for us too, I think here. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, I'll say of creation, (laughs) until now. Now listen how he ends this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God began a good work in you in Genesis 1. Yeah, you messed it up. So did I. We've all messed it up. And we will continue to mess it up. But he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The question is, do you trust him? Will you take a step back to the God who takes a step towards you? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you this morning for the encouragement that you are a loving God. Even in this famous passage in Genesis 3 that we look at as the the fall of mankind, which it is, we see that you are loving, that you move forward. In fact, we're not even told that you walk in the garden with Adam and Eve until after they've made this decision. God, you step in. You don't step away. Help us not to step away too. God, help us to trust that you love us enough, that you're not angry with us, so you're not gonna smite us, but that you're gonna embrace us, that you are going to cover us with the skins of redemption in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe it to our deepest places in Jesus' name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.